Welcome, everyone, to the monthly San Diego Zoom meeting of Ramana Maharshi, where we have a very special guest who joins us today. Actually, we have two. Anyway, from London, Michael James joins us on the first Sundays of every month to answer any and all questions you might have about Ramana Maharshi. And David Godman and Marie is, is here today uh, for the first time. So it's uh, it's a large crowd. I'm sure the two hours will go by faster than any two hours I've ever sat through before. If you are watching us on YouTube, you are welcome to join us live yourselves by writing me, Ted, that's my name, T-E-D, at newsguy55 at AOL.com, N-E-W-S-G-U-Y-5-5 at AOL.com. And I will send you the link. We use the same link not only every month when Michael's here, but every week of the year on Sundays. And you're welcome to join us for any and all of those. So let's get started with the first question. Michael, are you ready? Yes. It's from Susan. I don't see Susan here. Uh, Maybe she'll be joining us later. Okay. Anyway, Susan says, Michael, when doing self-inquiry and when asking in whom is this thought occurring, the answer is, of course, in me. And when asking who am I, you understand that this is not at all a question to be answered, but to be explored and considered and investigated. This is a very common question. I've asked it myself of you and others several times. It's always good to hear the answer a couple of times. She goes on and says, but if I were to answer, would it be correct to say that I am the observer, that I am the observer of the illusory mind-body Susan? And then she says, to explain, I, Susan, am walking down the street. I'm following Ramana's teachings. And so I say to myself out of the blue, I, as the I, as in I am, is observing Susan walking down the street. And I am now observing Susan stopping to buy a cup of coffee. Michael, is this correct? And if not, why not? Okay. Well, firstly, it's important to understand that self-inquiry or self-investigation is not asking questions. Bhagavan has very clearly defined um, what he means by atma-vichara or self-investigation in the um, in the uh, 16th paragraph of Nana, what he says there is, Sada kalamum manate atma vil kutan atma vichara mendrupaya. What that means is, the name atma vichara is only for always keeping the mind on atma. Is only for implies re- refers only to. So the name atma vichara refers only to always keeping the mind on Atma. Atma means oneself. Keeping the mind on something means keeping our attention on on it. So self-investigation is nothing but um, self-attentiveness, being self-attentive, attending only to ourselves. That is what Bhagavan means by self-investigation. That is, there's no means by which we can investigate what we are other than by attending to ourselves. So by attending to ourselves or observing ourselves, we are thereby investigating ourselves. In in um, Bhagavan often talked about investigating to whom is this thought or to whom do all these things appear or who am I? But he didn't say ask who am I or ask to whom these thoughts occur. He said investigate. If 
supposing Bhagavan gives you a book and uh, asks you to investigate what's written in it, you don't just sit there asking yourself what's written in this book, what's written in this book. You open the book and see what's inside. That is what is meant by investigating. You open it and see. Likewise, when he says investigate who am I or investigate to whom are these thoughts, he means that we should turn our attention back to ourselves to see what we actually are. Sometimes, for example, in the sixth paragraph of Nana, um, I'll just get that sixth paragraph. Um, uh, he he says, for example, he says, um, it, it, if other thoughts rise without trying to complete them, it isn't... Oh, wait, saying no, uh, yes. If other thoughts rise without trying to complete them, it is necessary to investigate to whom they have occurred. He here he says investigate, not ask to whom they have occurred. The verb he used in Tamil is vichari, which means to investigate. It's necessary to investigate to whom they have occurred. I'll just say one thing here, in because vichari uh, is often translated as inquiry. It's this type of passage is often translated as it is necessary to inquire to whom they have occurred. In English, inquire can mean investigate or it can mean to ask a question. So that is why this idea that it's about asking to whom, how this idea has arisen. But actually what Bhagavan says is when he says vichari, he's, uh, what he means by that, we need to investigate to whom they have occurred. So if other thoughts rise without trying to complete them, it is necessary to investigate to whom they have occurred. However many thoughts rise, so what? Vigilantly, as soon as each thought appears, if one investigates to whom it has occurred, it will be clear to me. If one investigates who am I, uh, the mind will return to its birthplace and the, uh, and the thought that had risen will also cease. When one practices and practices in this manner, for the mind to stand in it firmly established, for the mind, the power to stand firmly established in its birthplace increases. So here he's talking about uh, investigating to whom and investigating who am I. Some people, as I say, take it to be questioning. They ask, to whom is this thought? It's to me, to who am I? But what does Boba mean when he talks about investigating to whom? When he says we need to investigate to whom, we need to investigate to whom only when some other thought appears. If another thought appears, and here what Boba means by thought is not just that is Bhagavan, generally we, that is many people think of thought as just a mental chatter. But Bhagavan uses the term thought in a much broader sense. All mental phenomena, all mental impressions are thoughts. So according to Bhagavan, the whole world is nothing but thoughts. As he says ex explicitly in the fourth paragraph and the 14th paragraph of uh, Nana. In the 14th paragraph, he puts it particularly succinctly. He says, Jagam Embadu Nineve. What is called the world is only thought. So when Bhagavan talks about thought, he's not just talking about mental chatter. If anything, any phenomenon at all appears, 
that means our attention has been diverted away from ourselves towards something else. So when I, when that appears, we need to turn our attention back towards ourselves. So what he means by saying investigate to whom, that is investigating to whom something has appeared is turning our attention away from whatever has appeared back towards ourself. So to whom, investigating to whom represents the turning. And investigating who am I means once we've turned our attention back towards ourselves, we need to hold our attention on ourselves. So um, investigating to whom is turning our attention back towards ourselves. Investigating who am I is not letting go of the resulting self-attentiveness. Um, so it's not a matter of questioning, it's a matter of investigating. And we can investigate only by attending to ourselves. Um, so that, that's the first point to uh, clarify. And um, Susan has written, when asking in whom this thought, uh, is this thought occurring? The answer is in me. It's not wrong to, to think of it in terms of in whom, but actually Bhagavan generally expressed it as to whom, because everything appears to us. Whatever appears, that is one of the fundamental principles of Advaita philosophy, is that there's but what actually exists is one only without a second. That means there's no other thing. And that one thing is ourself. As Bhagavan says in the seventh paragraph of Nana, Yatatamai Ulladu Apmasarupa Mondre. That means what actually exists is only Apmasarupa. Apmasarupa means the real nature of ourself. So what we actually are, that alone is what actually exists. There is nothing else but it actually exists. All other things according to Advaita, are a mere appearance. This is what is called vivata-vada. Vivata means an appearance, but in the sense of an illusory appearance. So according to Advaita, everything other than ourself is just an illusory appearance. But there cannot be an appearance without it appearing to someone. So to whom does it appear? That is... In all the in classical Advaita, so much emphasis is put on the fact that everything is just an appearance. But what is what nobody thinks to ask is if it's an appearance, to whom does it appear? Bhagavan has come, and that that is one of the one of the special things about Bhagavan. What what Bhagavan has brought that is the Advaita philosophy, <laughs> therefore thousands of years. It was there even long before Shankara, though Shankara um, uh, uh, very much established Advaita as, as one, of the, um, one of the valid interpretations of Vedanta. But actually, Advaita is there implied in so many of the Upanishads, which go back thousands of years. So, so though this Advaita Vedanta had been around for thousands of years, what is the practical implication of it? That is what Bhagavan has has highlighted in his teachings. For example, it, it, it's uh, everyone knows that uh, the Mahavakya, the four Mahavakyas, uh, that is in each of the um, <clears throat> each of the Vedas in 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 one of the Upanishads, in each of the Vedas, there is what is called a Mahavakya. But Mahavakya simply means great saying. But the what are generally referred to as the four Mahavakyas are four statements that teach Jiva, Brahma, Aikya. That is the oneness of Jiva and Brahman. Um, 
those four Mahavakyas are um, the most famous one probably is Tattvamasi, you are, you are that, in which that refers to Brahman. Um, then there's Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Um, I am Atma Brahma, this, this self, this very self, I myself am Brahman, and uh, Pragnanam Brahman, awareness is Brahman. Um, so the, because these all uh, assert the, the oneness of our self and Brahman, they, these are called Mahavakyas. And the most famous of them is Tattvamasi. Um, uh, if you, um, even Shankara has, um, has written uh, not only in his commentaries on the, uh, um, on the Upanishads, but he's even written a separate text on this, um, on the uh, Mahavakya Tattvamasi. It, I think it's called Vakya Vritti or something, I can't remember. It, anyway, there's a te whole text Shankara has written explaining this Mahavakya Tattvamasi. And he's explaining it for the sake of others, for people who are not coming to this path, to try to, to, try to broaden the appeal of, of, of Advaita, to make it uh, acceptable to a broader audience. He analyzes it philosophically. But according to Bhagavan, what should, when we hear Tattvamasi, we don't have to analyze what is meant by Tat, what is meant by Tvum, and how Tat is Tvum. Bhagavan expresses it very clearly and simply in um in verse 32 of Uladunapadu. Um the way he expresses it is very um he that is Bhagavan has a way of packing a huge amount into very few words. So I'll first read the literal meaning of the verse and then I'll explain what um what uh what it implies. The the literal meaning of the verse is when the Vedas proclaim that is you, instead of oneself being, knowing oneself as what, thinking I am that, not this, is due to non-existence of strength, because that alone uh, is always seated as oneself. That's the literal meaning of a verse. So in the first part, when he says, when the Vedas proclaim that is you, instead of oneself being, knowing oneself as what, what he implies by that is, as soon as we hear the, uh, the, the this Mahavakya, Tattvamasi, you are that, what should our response be? Oh, if I am that, then what am I? We should turn our attention back to ourselves. Uh, that is, what is the purpose of this Mahavakya? Before we hear these Mahavakyas, we're all looking for things outside ourselves because everything seems to be lacking in ourselves. Happiness is lacking in ourselves, so it must be outside ourselves. Knowledge seems to be lacking in ourselves, so we have to find it outside ourselves. God, where is God? God must be outside ourselves. So we, the natural, the, the nature of the mind is to always look for things outside itself. So the purpose of the Mahavakya is to tell us that whatever we're looking for, whether we call it God or Brahman or happiness or knowledge or whatever it may be, you yourself are that. As soon as we hear that we ourselves are that, we should stop thinking of Brahman or happiness or knowledge or whatever it is, God or whatever. We should stop thinking of it as something other than ourselves. We should recognize, oh, if I am that, then what am I? We should turn our attention back to investigate ourselves. So that 
as Bhagavan implies in this verse, the aim of these Mahabhakyas is to turn our attention back to ourselves. We don't have to go into long philosophical um, discussions of what tat means, what tvum means, and how tat is tvum, in what sense tat is tvum. The reason Shankara did this is because he had a divine mission to broaden the appeal of Advaita. So in order to broaden the appeal of Advaita, he had to dilute in so many ways. But all such analysis is unnecessary. It's a very simple statement. You are that. That obviously refers to Brahman. So till now, we've been looking for Brahman outside ourselves. That Brahman that we've been looking for outside ourselves the, the Mahabhakya tells us we ourselves are that. There's no Brahman other than ourselves. So we can forget about Brahman and, and investigate ourselves alone. That is the aim of the Mahabhakya. That is what Bhagavan makes clear in his teaching. So the whole aim of Bhagavan's teaching is to, is to, is to highlight the practical implication of all of uh, uh, Vedanta or all of Advaita. Um, so, uh, Bhagavan's teachings are all about practice. Sorry, I've forgotten where I went off. This is a bit of a red herring, but I went off on this for a purpose. And I, um, oh yes. So, the whole aim of Bhagavan's teaching is this: is to uh, turn our attention back to ourselves, to investigate ourselves. Um, so it's. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to remember how I, how I. Uh, got diverted onto that. Um, okay, anyway, I, that, I'll leave that aside. I'll come back to the question. So, uh, doing self-investigation or self-inquiry is not about asking to whom. It's not about asking who am I. It's about investigating who am I. And we can investigate who am I only by turning our attention within. Then to continue the rest of the... Um, so, Susan says... Um, this is not a question to be answered, but to be explored or investigated. Yes, exactly. It's not. A, it's it's a it's a, a metaphorical question rather than an, an actual question. It's what we should investigate. We should investigate what am I? Um, <clears throat> uh, then she goes on to say, "But if I were to answer, would it be correct to say that I am the observer of the illusory body mind, Susan?" No, it would not be quite correct. However, it is useful to first recognize that we are the observer. Because till now, we have been identifying ourselves with this body and mind. But when we study Bhagavan's teachings or Advaita, we come to understand that we, we are not what we take ourselves to be. We are because this body and mind are all objects known by us. We are the subject. We are the one who knows all these objects. So it's a useful starting point to distinguish ourselves as the observer from everything else that is known by us. This is what is called Drik Drisya Viveka. There's a whole text uh, that Shankara wrote on this, which is this, um, but the, the gist of it is we need to distinguish Drik means the seer, but it means the seer in the sense of the, the perceiver, the knower. So we need to distinguish the knower from everything known. So all objects, all phenomena are things known by us. We are not any of these things. We are the knower of them. 
But this is not the ultimate truth, because what is the knower of all these objects? It is only ourself as ego. So the, the, the subject, the knower of all objects is ego. But why this Drisya Vibhika is necessary is we, in order to investigate what we actually are, we first need to distinguish ourselves from all the objects that we now take ourselves to be. This body is an object. All the five sheaths are objects. Um, that is the, the prana, but that's the life, uh, the breathing, and the, all the physiological functions. These are all objects known by us. The mind, in the sense of all the grosser functions of the mind, the perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, and so on, all of these are objects known by us. The intellect and its workings are objects known by us. The will, which consists of vasanas, are objects known by us. But we are something separate from all these things. We are the knower of all these things. So it is useful. This is why this term Sakshi is often used in, um, in classical Advaita. Sakshi means witness. Um, so but, but there are two senses in which the term Sakshi is used in. Um, this is something important that Bhagavan clarified because there, there tends to be a lot of confusion of what exactly is meant by Sakshi. That is, Bhagavan said, Sakshi is used in two senses in the, the older texts. One sense is Sakshi means the observer, the knower, the one who, who is aware of all this. In that sense, Sakshi is ego. But it is also said that Brahman is Sava Sakshi or Jiva Sakshi. Sava Sakshi means the witness of everything. Jiva Sakshi means the witness of Jiva. Bhagavan said, in that sense, Sakshi means sanadi. That means witness means presence. So Brahman is the, the witness of everything, not in the sense that Brahman knows everything. What knows everything is only ego. In the view of Brahman, there's nothing other than itself to know. But, but what is meant by uh, Sakshi, the witness of everything, is that in the presence of Brahman, everything exists. That is, nothing could exist but for the presence of Brahman. So uh, Sakshi um, there is used in the sense of presence. That's why Bhagavan often used to say Sakshi means sanadi. That's in when talking when Brahman or uh, or our real nature is referred to as the um, as, as Sakshi. It means uh, presence. But Sakshi is also used to refer to ego, which is the knower of everything. So. Uh, yes, it is. It's useful to start off with the understanding that we are not this body or mind that we take ourselves to be. We are the knower of this, the witness of this, the observer of this. So it's a useful starting point, but it's not the ultimate truth. Because if we investigate ourselves, who now seem to be the observer, that is, the observer is ego. If we investigate ego, what will we find? We will find what we actually are. If Supposing we are um, walking with Bhagavan uh, along, uh, there was a, a path behind the ashram that led to Palakotu. So supposing we were walking with Bhagavan along that path in the dim light of dusk, and we see something lying on the path, but we take to be a snake. We're afraid. And we say, Bhagavan, Bhagavan, there's a snake there. Bhagavan knows very well that it's just a rope. So he, 
But he knows if he tells us it's a, it, but it's just a rope, that's not going to be sufficient because we're still, it's still to us it looks like a snake, so we're still going to be afraid of it. So rather than just telling us it's just a rope, Bhagavan says, look at it carefully and then you'll see it's just a rope. If we pluck up the courage and look at that snake carefully, if we ask Bhagavan at that point, what is it I should look at? Should I look at the snake or at the rope? Bhagavan will say, look at the snake. Um, like that, when people ask Bhagavan, what is the I I should investigate? Is it ego or the self? Bhagavan said it's the ego, because so long as we take them to be two things, ego and self, Bhagavan will obviously tell us to investigate the I that we know, which is ego. So Bhagavan will say, look at ego. But if you look at the... So Bhagavan will say to us, look at the snake carefully. If we look at the snake carefully, what do we see? Oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. Exactly the same with ego. Ego is what we now seem to be, but it's not what we actually are. So if we look at ourselves carefully enough, when we begin to investigate ourselves, we seem to be investigating this ego. But what we find is that what seemed to be ego is actually Atmasurupa, our own real nature. So um, it, it's okay to understand ourselves, but we, to, to understand that we are, in fact, it's very useful to recognize that we are the observer. Though it's not the ultimate truth, it's useful to recognize that we are the observer, because the observer or the knower or the witness is something distinct from everything that is known by it. So that's a useful starting point. But then what do we have to observe? Once we, obs once we recognize that we are the observer, we should stop observing other things and should observe only ourselves. There are many, um, many uh, would-be Advaita teachers nowadays who say you should, uh, you should witness your thoughts. And they imagine that by witnessing your thought, that's called, um, they call it, um, they think that is what is meant by Sakshi Bhava. Sakshi Bhava actually means being the witness. But um, they take it. They take it that if you're observing your thoughts or observing whatever happening, like this mindfulness meditation they have in Buddhism, if you're observing everything, then you're being the witness. That is not what is meant. What is meant is, as Bhagavan made it clear, we should witness the witness. We should observe the observer. We should see the seer. That is, once we recognize that we are not anything that is known, but we are the knower of all things, then we should seek to know who is the knower. We should seek, we should try to see the seer or observe the observer. Um, in other words, we should turn our attention back to ourselves. So it is useful to understand that we are the observer, even though that is not the ultimate truth. It's also useful to understand that being the observer is not the ultimate truth, but it's useful um, it's, a, it's a very useful starting point because only when we are able to distinguish ourselves as the knower from everything that is known can we truly begin to investigate ourselves. So long as we mistake ourselves to be this body or mind or any other phenomenon, if we're asked to investigate ourselves, we'll be investigating something other than ourselves. We'll be investigating whatever we take to be ourselves. So First, we, that's why the strictity of Vivaka is so important. First, we need to distinguish ourselves from whatever we now take ourselves to be. We need to recognize that we are the knower of, of this body. We are the knower of this mind. So none of these things are ourselves. We are the knower of them. Once we recognize that we are the knower, then we have to investigate 
who am I, this knower? If we investigate the knower or the observer, we will see the, that the underlying reality is what we actually are, which is pure awareness. In the view of pure awareness, there's nothing other than itself. So pure awareness is not the subject. Pure awareness is the reality of the subject. The subject is ego. And as Bhagavan often pointed out, ego is the adjunct completed awareness, I am this body. But in this adjunct completed awareness, I am this body, what is real is only I am. I am is our existence, our fundamental awareness of our own existence. That is what is real. So we, as Bhagavan says in um, in verse 25 of Upadesha India, knowing oneself without, or yes, knowing oneself without adjuncts is itself knowing God, because God shines as oneself. So the difference between ourself and God is that we know ourselves mixed and conflated with adjuncts, uh, whereas God is just the pure being that we actually are. God is I am. Ego is I am this body. If we remove the body, and know ourselves just as I am, that is knowing ourselves as God. So um, we, it, uh, uh, the knower is, is this adjunct completed awareness, I am this body. But when we begin to investigate ourselves, what we're investigating, though, though we're investigating ego, as Bhagavan, Bhagavan puts it beautifully in, um, in Maharshi's gospel in one place, he explains that ego is chit jadagranti. Chit Jadagranti means chit means awareness. That is the I am portion. Jada means what is not aware. That is the body. So in this adjunct completed awareness, I am this body. I am is chit. The body is jada. And the conflation of these two things is what is called granti. Granti means a not. So the entanglement of chit and jada is what forms ego. So we need to, when we are investigating ourselves. How Bowman puts it, how it's recorded in Maharshi's Gospel is, in your investigation into the source of the Ahambriti, you take the essential chit aspect of ego, and therefore it unfailingly leads you to a pure awareness that you actually are. The essential chit aspect of ego means I am. So we're not investigating this body, we're only investigating the I am. So I am is the heart of ego. That's what ego that what ego essentially is, it's just that I am. So if we investigate this ego, just like if you look carefully at the snake, you'll see it's a rope. If we look carefully at ego, we'll see that it is just pure awareness. There's no, di there's, <clears throat> that is, ego is nothing other than pure awareness. It, the difference in ego and pure awareness is not a difference in substance, it's a difference in appearance. Ego seems to be something else because it's identified itself with the body. But actually, in essence, ego is nothing but pure awareness. So if we understand that we are the knower or observer and then investigate, turn our attention back to know the knower, to observe the observer, to see the seer, that is self-investigation. Um, and then I'll see if there's anything else to be answered here. To explain, I, Susan, am walking down the street. Susan is walking down the street. It's not that is why do we say I, Susan, am walking down the street? Because <laughs> we identify ourselves as Susan, as Susan or whoever it may be. So if Susan is walking down the street, but there's an I that is aware of itself as I am Susan and feels it's walking down the street, but actually that I 
but is mistaking itself to be Susan is actually something distinct from Susan. I is the I is what is knowing Susan walking down the street. Um, I follow Ramana's teachings and I say to myself, I, the I, as in I am, is observing Susan walking down the street. Yes, that that is it's this is useful as this is the preliminary analysis. We need to distinguish ourselves from the person we seem to be. So once we've distinguished ourselves, the person we seem to be is something known by us. The person is this bundle of five sheaths, but the, the, the body, mind, the body, life, mind, intellect, and will. This bundle of five sheaths is the person we take ourselves to be. But this person is not what we actually are. So we first need to separate ourselves from this person by recognizing that we are the knower of this person. Then we need to investigate the knower, and then we will know what we actually are is not even the knower. It is only the, the pure awareness I am. Um, so I hope this is an adequate answer to that question. I think you did a pretty good job, Michael, as always, of course. Mm -hmm. I don't believe Susan's here. I think she's yeah. one who watches on YouTube. Okay, so that's fine. see your answer, but she's not able to follow up on it right now. Right. Uh, thanks again. The first two questions. Does, does anyone have any questions on what I've tried to explain here? Have I explained it clearly enough? I, I explained I, it beautiful. I, yeah. I'm gonna I, I'm gonna take this time to move on. Right. Uh, we can get at least two questions in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, you you don't take enough time on answering these questions, Michael. Yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and the second person who wrote us uh, whose question is uh, interesting in many ways uh, just joined us, so she'll be here to follow up with uh, a comment about your answer to it, Harshita. Narjita, forgive me, but I'm going to try to pronounce your name. Your last name is Chodabar Apu. She says, no matter how much I try, I am unable to pursue the path of Atmavachara with dedication. Firstly, it is very hard to practice self-inquiry. Secondly, on those very few occasions when I actually sit and try and focus, I really don't know what to expect when I close my eyes and try to observe my thoughts because I am not sure how self even feels. Is the thoughtless state the actual self? Because I am unable to go beyond that. And her follow-up question is, how do I not fall into the trap of utter frustration and keep on keeping on preserving, persevering? Okay. Um... Uh, I just consider how to where to start with this. Um, okay, I think the, the most important point is this um, is this uh, this sentence the the, um, the the third sentence. Secondly, on those few occasions when I actually sit and try and focus. I don't know what to expect when I close my eyes and observe my thoughts because I'm not sure how self even feels. Firstly, about observing thoughts. Observing thoughts, thoughts are something other than ourself. So observing thoughts is not self-investigation. We, uh, we, that's why Bowen says, however many thoughts are, appear, so what? Vigilantly, as and when each thought appears, 
appears, we should investigate to whom it appears. That means we shouldn't be investigating the thought, we should be investigating ourselves, the one to whom the thought appears. So our aim is not to observe thoughts, our aim is to observe the observer. Um, secondly, um, she says, I'm not sure how self even feels. We are not just a feeling. We are more than a feeling. That is what we actually are is, 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 is the, the <clears throat> we are all aware I am. We're all aware of our own existence. That awareness I am, that is what we actually are. Now we conflate this awareness I am with a set of adjuncts, the person we take ourselves to be, and we feel I am this person, I am this body. But what we actually are is just that fundamental awareness I am. This fundamental awareness I am is something that we all know very clearly. As Bhagavan says, there's nothing so clear and so self-evident as this awareness I am. The one thing that we all abundantly clear, um, uh, abundantly clear uh, uh, that is one, one thing that is very clear and self-evident and obvious to us is I am. We can doubt the existence of all other things. The one thing whose existence we cannot reasonably doubt is our own existence. We all clearly are aware I am. Um, here it's very useful to refer to what um, to there's a song Anma Vide that was uh, uh, this is a song it's a kirtanam that so a kirtan is uh, it's a, a style of song that consists of a um, a palavi which is a refrain an anu palavi which is a post refrain and a series of charanangal which are verses Murugana wrote the palavi and anu palavi for this song in order to ask Bhagavan to write the Charanangal. So the, 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 the verses are all supporting what Murugana has written in the, in the Pallavi and Anupallavi. What Murugana sings in the Pallavi is, Aye Atisulapum, Anma Videi, Aye Atisulapum. That means, ah, extremely easy. Atma Vidya, ah, extremely easy. Atma Vidya means knowing oneself. So knowing ourself is extremely easy. That's the import of the Pallavi. And this Pallavi is repeated after every verse. So every verse Bhagavan has written here is to emphasize how easy it is for us to know ourselves. And then in the Anu Pallavi, the, the post-refrain, Murugana, um, Murugana uh, sings, um, oneself exists as so very real, even for those who are simple-minded, but an amalaka fruit on the palm ends as unreal. That's the literal meaning. It requires a little bit of explanation. In, it's, in Tamil and many other languages, Indian languages, if you want to say that something is very clear, you say it's as clear as an amalaka fruit on the uh, palm. An amalaka fruit is what is, um, nowadays many people know it as amla. It's used in many um, many health uh, uh, medicines and things. It's a, it's a particular fruit. It's about the size of a grape. Um, 
So if you've got a, a, a grape-sized fruit on your palm, it's something that's very clear. So it's often when you want to say something is as, as clear as broad daylight, you say it's as clear as an amalaka fruit on the palm. But what Murugana is saying here, but we ourselves, that, that is our own existence is so very real and cl- clear, he doesn't say clear, but clear is implied, it's so very real and clear, that even for the most simple-minded person, even someone who's completely uneducated, who's not even very intelligent, everyone knows I am. So it's that even the amalaka on the palm is is uh, is something unreal in comparison to the the blindingly obvious uh, reality of our own existence. And Bhagavan goes on in, in the in the um, in the first of the um, Charanam, Bhagavan um, reiterates and emphasizes what Murugana says there. He says, though oneself exists incessantly and indubitably as real, the body and world which are unreal arise sprouting as real. So that, there's nothing that is so that is, Bhagavan is supporting what Murugana is, is, says there, but what is very, very clear and obvious to all of us is I am. We're all constantly saying, I did this, I did that, I I think this, I I'm I'm unhappy, I'm happy, I'm this, I'm that. I is there at the center of all our experience. Whatever we experience, who is experiencing it? I am. So the, the, the problem is because we are all so interested in knowing, experiencing things other than ourselves, we overlook this obvious, we, we take I am for granted. But I am is actually the, the, the ground, it is the Adaro, Adishtana, the base on which everything appears. Bhagavan often used to say, the, uh, compare the, this fundamental awareness I am to the screen in a cinema. Without the screen, no pictures would appear. But because we are so interested in watching the pictures, we overlook the screen. So we sit there for three hours in the cinema, watch it, looking at the screen for three hours. We hardly noted the existence of, we probably don't notice the existence of the screen at all because we didn't come there to watch the screen. We came there to watch the pictures. Likewise, because we are so interested in all the these phenomena that appear, we overlook the, the the background of which they all appear. They all are, that is the basis, the underlying basis of all experience is I am. That in any experience, who is experiencing it? I am experiencing it. So I am is the center of everything. That's why Bhagavan referred to I am as the heart. Heart means the center. That is that alone is what is real. But so we there's we all clearly know our own existence. So when um, Hashita says, I'm not sure how self even feels, we can only say something like that if we are looking for something that we do not know. But as Bhagavan said, the one thing we always know is I am. And there's nothing else to know other than I am. Bhagavan often used to say, if jnana were a new knowledge to be attained, Whatever comes has to go. So if we were to gain jnana newly, we would sooner or later lose it. But jnana is not a new knowledge to be attained. Jnana, we ourselves are jnana. 
in verse 13 of Uludunapadu, he begins by saying, Jnana mam tane me. One self who is jnana alone is real. Jnana means, uh, means awareness, but in it in this context, it implies pure awareness. So the, <clears throat> we are all, we, we that, that is that awareness I am, that is jnana. There's nothing more for us to know. As Bhavan used to say, <clears throat> Bhavan sometimes used to joke about the English term self-realization. He said, uh, that, that what is real is always real, so there's no need to realize it. The problem is that we've now realized the unreal. So all that is required is for us to unrealize the unreal and the real alone will remain. The real is I am. The unreal is ego. I am this body. So if we unrealize this unreal ego, um, what will remain in other words, if we investigate ourselves and know what we actually are, thereby uh, destroy this, eradicate this ego, what will remain is what alone is real. So we are, and there is, what we are seeking to know is what we always know. But though we always know I am, we don't know what I am because we now miss, we, we have now conflated I am with something that we are not. We take ourselves to be, I am this person. I am Hashita. I am Michael. I am whoever. Um, <clears throat> so the, all, all we need to do is to separate ourselves from all the adjuncts with which we've now conflated ourselves. How can we separate ourselves from these adjuncts? So long as we're allowing our attention to go outwards towards anything else, that which knows other things is only ourself as ego. So we are binding ourselves to the adjuncts so long as we're knowing anything other than ourself. But when we turn our attention back within to know ourself alone, in other words, when we try to hold on to that fundamental awareness, I am alone, the adjuncts will naturally drop off because the adjuncts are not holding us. Hashita is not holding, holding you. Michael is not holding me. I am holding Michael. You are holding Hashita. So, it, when we instead of holding on to these adjuncts, if we hold on to ourselves, holding on to ourselves means holding on to I am our very existence. If we hold on to ourselves, the adjuncts will drop off, and we alone will remain. So, they, uh, to say I'm not sure how self feels means we're taking self to be something unknown. We are not interested in knowing any unknown self. If self were something unknown, knowing it would be of no use to us because whatever is known new, newly will be forgotten. But the one thing that we always know is ourself. But what we all know I am. That's all there is to know. So we need to give up knowing other things and only by giving up knowing all other things, by holding on to this I am, will we know I am as it is. So what we actually are is nothing other than I. That's why Bhagavan often used to say, aham aham, or nan nan, I am I. <clears throat> that is, um, now we mistake ourselves to be this body, I am this. Uh, but Bhagavan says, I am this or I am that is is untrue. What is true is only I am, or I am I. I that is, oneself is nothing other than oneself. What we actually are is only ourself. Um, so, 
this sort of question arises when we haven't thought deeply enough about Bhagavan's teachings. That is, there, is said, there are three things that are necessary. Sravana, manana, nidityasana. Sravana means a, a, a ten, um, studying Bhagavan's teachings attentively, paying close attention to what he actually says. That is Sravana. Sravana literally means hearing, but it uh, it, it implies uh, also uh, reading or studying or uh, Bhagavan's teachings. Manana means thinking about it carefully. That is, when we read Bhagavan's teachings, we're able to get something from it, but we need to make sense of it. In order to make sense of it, we need to think about it very carefully. When Bhagavan says we need to investigate ourselves, we need to attend to ourselves. What is it? What does he mean by attend to ourselves? We need to think about it. Because only if we think about it carefully in the light of what he said and come to understand, come to make sense of what he's saying, will we actually be able to put it into practice? If we don't understand what is what Bhagavan means by self when he says we need to investigate ourselves, we obviously cannot investigate ourselves. So Understanding Bhagavan's teachings clearly and correctly is very necessary. Of course, when we first read and think about Bhagavan's teachings, we only understand them to a certain extent, but we must at least understand them to the extent that we understand what he means by investigating ourselves. Once we start investigating ourselves, then the meaning of his teachings will become clearer and clearer to us. As we go deeper in this practice, the practice is what is called nidityasana. Nidityasana literally means deep contemplation. In the context of Bhagavan's teachings, the nidityasana is atmavichara, contemplating our own real nature, in other words, attending to ourselves. The deeper we go in this practice of self-investigation, the clearer Bhagavan's teachings will become. Like if you're if you're given a map of a country you've never been to, you'll understand something from a map. Yes, these contours mean there's a mountain there and a valley here, and there's a, this blue line is a river, and this is a road. And we get we have some general idea of we're able to form a general idea of what the layout of the country from the map. But if we take the map with us and travel to that country and actually start to see the features that are marked on that map, then the map will become so much more meaningful to us. Exactly the same with Bhagavan's teachings. The more we put Bhagavan's teachings into, first we need to understand, have, have at least a basic understanding of what Bhagavan is talking about. Then we need to put it into practice. As we go deeper and deeper in the practice, Bhagavan's words will become more and more meaningful to us. <clears throat> It's now nearly, um, what, about uh, 47 years since I first came to Tiruvannamala and started reading Nana, Uludu Napadu and such texts. But I'm still reading these texts after so many years and I'm still learning from them because not that I'm learning... I'm not learning any new information, but the meaning and implication of what Bhagavan is saying in those verses and in those simple sentences of Nana becomes more and more meaningful as we go deeper and deeper in the practice. So first thing, we need to clearly understand what Bhagavan is talking about. That is the heart of Bhagavan's teaching. What the aim of all Bhagavan's teachings 
is self-investigation. That is, we can, Bhagavan's teachings are all pointing us towards this simple practice of investigating ourselves. So the first thing we need to understand is what he means by self-investigation. If we think that, if we think as Hashita thinks, that we, we're not sure how self even feels. We are thinking about self as something unknown. So the first thing we need to understand is that self is what we all know. We all know I am. There's no self other than I am. That is, we. there's no self other than ourself. So we all know ourself. But the problem is we know ourselves as if we were something other than what we actually are. So first we need to read Bhagavan's teachings carefully, Think about them carefully and deeply in order to at least understand what he means by self-investigation. Then we need to start putting it into practice. So now I'll come back to the first sentence. No matter how hard I try, I'm unable to pursue the path of Atma with dedication. That is, the first obstacle we face is understanding what is Atma Once we've understood what is Atma and start to practice it, then we all find, I think any of us who are honest with ourselves, we find that though Bhagavan says this path is extremely easy, it seems to us to be difficult. But why does it seem difficult? When Bhagavan says it's easy, it must be easy. But to us it seems difficult. Why does it seem difficult? The simple reason is we don't have sufficient love to follow this path. To follow this path requires all-consuming love. Because as Bhagavan uh, taught us, that is the nature of ego. And in verse 25 of Alunayaklu, Bhagavan describes ego as a formless phantom. <clears throat> and he says, uh, grasping... So since it's formless, it has got no separate existence of its own. It's formless means it's got no form of its own, so it's got no separate existence of its own. So how does ego seem to exist? It cannot seem to exist without grasping a form as itself. So as Bhagavan says in that verse 25, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. If sought, it takes flight. The formless phantom ego. That's the exact meaning of the verse. So, <clears throat> what is the what does he mean by grasping form? The first form that we grasp is the form of a body. That is what we take to be ourselves. That is, as as Bowman said, ego is that false awareness that is always aware of itself as I am this body. So the first form we grasp is a body which we take to be ourself. We grasp it by being aware of it ourself as I am this body. <clears throat> so uh, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. In those two first two sentences, uh, the form he's talking about there is the form of the body, which, as he says in verse 5 of Uludunapdu, is a form composed of five sheaths, the five sheaths being the physical body, the life or prana, the, the mind, intellect, and the will. These are for five sheaths. So Bhagavan refers to these collectively as body because we never experience ourselves as a body. We never experience ourselves as a dead body. So it's always a living body. So the, the life is always there. We experience the physical form of the body and the life. 
And we never experience ourselves as a sleeping body. It's always a body that seems to be awake. Even in dream, the body we experience as ourselves seems to be awake. So in the, in the state of waking, the mind, intellect and will are functioning within this body. So we never experience any of these five sheaves uh, without experiencing all five of them. And that's why Bowen said all five are, in, therefore all five are included in the term body. <clears throat> so, um, <clears throat> uh, sorry, I, I, I'm just trying to pick up my, my train of thought there. Um, oh yes, I was talking about verse 25 of Ulugnaptu. So, when he, Bowen says grasping form, it comes into existence, grasping form, it stands. What he means by grasping form there is grasping the form of a body as I. Um, so we, without, without taking a body to be I, we cannot rise as ego and we cannot stand as ego. That is, we cannot endure. Stand there means endure. We cannot endure as ego. So we rise and stand as ego by grasping a body as I. Having grasped the body as I, we then begin to uh, uh, grasp and feed on other forms. By grasping and feeding on other forms, we flourish abundantly, as Bhagavan says. How do we grasp other forms? That is, we grasp this first form, the form of this body, by being aware of ourselves as I am this body. We grasp other things, other forms, by being aware of, of, of those other uh, forms as uh, I am knowing this, I am seeing this, I am hearing this, I'm, I'm tasting this, I'm uh, touching this, I'm smelling this, I'm uh, believing this, I'm uh, remembering this, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I, I understand this, I know this, I remember this, whatever. All these, that is all knowledge is based on this, centered around this I. I is always the subject that knows all other things. So we, we, we grasp other thorns by knowing them, by experiencing them, by perceiving them, by experiencing them. Um, and by, by experiencing other forms, we ego thereby um, feeds itself and flourishes. So uh, attending to things other than ourselves is the food on which ego uh, lives. And then he says, leaving form, it grasps form. That is, because ego cannot stand for a moment without grasping form, as soon as it leaves one form, it grasps another form. But then he says, the most important sentence of all in that verse is, Tedinal otum pidicum. If sought, it takes flight. What does he mean by if sought? That is, if we as ego investigate ourselves to see what we actually are, we as ego will disappear, and what will remain is what we actually are. Um, uh, so when, from this verse, we have to understand that Bhagavan, in this verse, Bhagavan is teaching us what is the nature of ego. The very nature of ego is to be constantly grasping form. And by grasping form, it comes, that is, we rise as ego by grasping form, we stand as ego by grasping form, and we flourish as ego, we feed ourselves by grasping form. But if instead of grasping, since ego is formless, whatever forms we grasp are things other than ourselves. But instead of grasping any form, if we try to grasp ourselves, in other words, if we try to turn our attention away from all these phenomena, back towards ourselves to see who am I, um, <clears throat> we, 
we, and in other words, when we hold on to our own being, the, everything that we were previously holding on to, all the adjuncts will drop off. And so, as the adjuncts drop off, ego subsides and dissolves back into its source. That's what he means by it will take flight, autumn pitticum. Um, <clears throat> so we... And Bergman used to illustrate this very nicely with uh, various stories. One story he often used to tell is the story of uh, uh, the bridegroom's friend, uh, the, the person who posed as the best man in the wedding. That is, he didn't belong either to the bride's party or to the bridegroom's party. But so long as the wedding was going on, he was, he, to the uh, a bride's party, he appeared to be an important member of a bridegroom's party. And to a bridegroom's party, he appeared to be an important member of the other party. And he enjoyed himself. In those days, um, in, in India, marriages used to go on for five days. So for five days, he was happily feasting himself and bossing over people, pretending to be an important person on both sides. Um, but when the wedding was over and uh, the, most of the guests had left, and the, um, the, the very close relatives of the bride and bridegroom were able to sit together and, and started talking. Someone asked, who was that very helpful young man who came with you? He said, no, no, he didn't come with us. He, he was here when we came. And as soon as he noticed that we, they were beginning to make inquiries about him, he ran away. Um, never to be seen again. Likewise with ego. Ego is happily flourishing, bossing over us and causing all havoc, so long as we don't investigate it. But if we begin to investigate it, it will run away. So this, this is the nature of ego. So the nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by attending to things other than itself, but to subside and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself. So what we need to, what we need to do is to, all we need to do is to attend to ourselves. It seems hard because we are not yet, we don't yet have sufficient love. We don't, we are not yet willing to surrender ourselves completely. We, since ego will sub, will take flight or subside and disappear when we investigate it, we cannot investigate ourselves without thereby surrendering ourselves. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, to that extent we are uh, surrendering ourselves. And not only are we surrendering ourselves, we're surrendering everything else also, because everything else comes along with ego. As Bhagavan points out in the next verse, verse 26 of Ulugnabdu, he says, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Why does he say that? Because all of everything here means all objects or phenomena. All phenomena seem to exist only in the view of ourself as ego. So when we rise as ego in waking and dream, all these phenomena seem to exist. When we as egos uh, subside back into sleep, all phenomena disappear. Why? Because the phenomena exist only in the view of ourself as ego. So as Bhagavan says, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. That is when, as Bhagavan said, this wake, what we now take to be the waking state is just a dream. In a dream, what we see as the whole dream world, we are just seeing ourselves. That is, we, the dreaming mind, are seeing ourselves as the whole dream world. 
There's no dream world independent of the dreaming mind. So <clears throat> everything that we see, all these multitude of phenomena we see are nothing but ourselves. We, we ourselves are seeing ourselves as all this multiplicity. That's why Bhagavan says, Ahandeya Yabamam, ego itself is everything. And then he concludes verse 26 by saying, therefore, investigating what this is, is giving up everything. Why is it giving up everything? Because if we invest, what investigating what this is means investigating what ego is. If we investigate what this ego is, ego will, uh, will take flight, it will subside and, and dissolve back into its source. And since everything else depends for it, their semi-existence upon the semi-existence of ourself as ego, when ego takes flight, everything else will take flight along with it. So Bhagavan's path is the ultimate path of renunciation. This is why Bhagavan never asked anyone to... But <clears throat> Bhagavan was not concerned about outward forms of sannyasa. But some people have said Bhagavan was opposed to sannyasa. That is untrue. Um, I think Arthur Osborne has said something about that, but Bhagavan would discourage people. No, Bhagavan neither encouraged nor discouraged people taking sannyasa. But what Bhagavan said about sannyasa, just like marriage comes according to um, uh, prarabdha, according to destiny, sannyasa also comes according to destiny. But that's all external. That's not the real renunciation. The renunciation that Bhagavan taught us it's the renunciation of everything, and we can renounce everything only by investigating who am I. By investigating who am I, we are thereby renouncing everything. It doesn't matter whether that is according to our destiny. We, we, we may be married, we may have 10 children, we may have to work 18 hours a day in order to support our family. It doesn't matter. If we have love to attend to ourselves, whatever be the uh, demands made on, on, on us, will not cannot stop stop us turning within as bhagavan often used to say prarabdha affects only the outward term mind it can never prevent us turning our mind within so we always have that freedom whatever our prarabdha may be so even if it's our prarabdha to work 18 hours a day seven days a week to support our family we can still attend to ourselves because who is working? I am working. So this Atmavichara can go on at all times. That's why when Bhagavan defined Atmavichara, and that what I referred to earlier in the 16th paragraph, he begins by saying Sadakalamum. Sadakalamum is a very strong way of saying always. Sadakalamum manate atmavil vetirapatu. That is keeping the mind uh uh, on oneself, always keeping the mind on oneself, that alone is Atmavichara. So Bhagavan expected us to be, or, or Bhagavan, the, the, what Bhagavan asked us to aim for is perpetual self-investigation, I mean, per perpetual self-attentiveness. Uh, likewise, in the 11th paragraph of uh, Nana, there's one sentence in which he says, Oruvam tan sarupam adeyam varayil, uh, 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 that means if one holds on to, holds fast to uninterrupted self and unbroken self-remembrance until one attains Swarupa, one's own real nature, Adu Andre Podum, that alone is sufficient. So 
what Bowen asks us to aim for. Some people ask, is it okay if we do the, if we do this self-inquiry 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night? Yes, that's good. Of course it's good. But what Bhagavan actually asks us to do throughout the waking and dream state, we should be trying to attend to ourselves. Of course, we all fall, fall far short of that, but that is what we should be aiming for. Um, so, as I say, coming back to Hashita's question, as Bhagavan said, this practice of self-investigation is extremely easy. Because the one thing that we all clearly know is I am. There's nothing that is clearer or more obvious than I am. So attending to I am is the easiest of all easy things. But to most of us, it seems to be difficult. Why? Because we're not willing to attend to I am. Why are we not willing to attend to I am? Because attending to I am is putting our head on the on the chopping block. The guillotine will come and chop the head off, chop our head off if we if we hold on to self-attentiveness firmly enough. So because we are not yet willing to surrender ourselves, this self-investigation seems to be difficult. One analogy I often give to illustrate this, if you've got an if you've got a sharp knife and a watermelon. It's very easy. A watermelon's got a hard ex exterior, but if you've got a sharp knife, it's very easy to cut the watermelon. So if, if it's so easy to cut a, water, a hard watermelon with a sharp knife, with the same sharp knife, it should be equally easy to cut our own throat. It, it, it has to be easy to cut our own throat. If the knife is sharp enough, cutting our own throat is very easy. But would it, are any of us able to do that? No, we would find it very difficult to cut our own throat because we know cutting our own throat will be uh, will put an end to this bodily life. And we're so much attached to this body, we're not willing to do so. Just like we're so attached to this body, but we're not willing to slit our throat, we're so attached to to our existence as ego, but we are not willing to hold on to self-attentiveness and thereby dissolve this ego completely. That is why self-investigation seems difficult. It is not difficult. It is extremely easy, as Bhagavan said. It seems difficult only because of a lack of love. That is why Bhagavan always often used to say, bhakti is the mother of jnana. The key to success in this path is love. We must have all-consuming love to know and to be what we actually are. Because only when we have such love will we be willing to surrender ourselves completely. So but the measure of our love for Bhagavan is, is how much we're actually holding on to self-attentiveness. Only if we're holding on to self-attentiveness, of course, if we're holding on to self-attentiveness, we'll not rise as I to say, I love Bhagavan, but we can truly say that we love Bhagavan only if we're holding on to self-attentiveness. And if we're holding on to self-attentiveness, there's no I to say, I love Bhagavan. But but the true measure of our love for Bhagavan is the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness. So I think most of us have to admit our love for Bhagavan is very, very inadequate. But we shouldn't be disheartened. The final question Hashita asked is, how do I not fall into a trap of frustration and keep persevering? That is, Bhagavan often used to, when people used to ask Bhagavan, Bhagavan, what is the sign of progress in this path? Bhagavan said, perseverance alone is the sign of progress. Because perseverance is the measure of our love. So we, however, we, 
if we're honest with us, I think we will all admit that our efforts are inadequate. However many years we may have been following this path, we will still feel, in fact, right up to the end, we will feel our efforts are inadequate. Because if we were actually holding on to self-attentiveness so firmly that we cease to be aware of anything else, all we need is a moment of such self-attentiveness in order to... uh, and to uh, annihilate ego. The fact that we ego is not yet annihilated means we still don't have, we're still not dedicating ourselves sufficiently to this path because of our lack of love. But we have to accept the fact, yes, we are all lacking in love. Um, even Bhagavan sang in Akshramle, of course, what Bhagavan sings in Akshramle, the prayers in Akshramle, though he, though he wouldn't have thought this while singing it, um, it's, it, we have to understand in retrospect this is all sung for us. In one verse, Bhagavan says, That means, in me who is devoid of love, you raise desire for you. Do not, do not cheat me. Do not disappoint me. So somehow by Bhagavan's grace, in our worldly heart, he raised some little liking, some little desire for him, some little love for him. Um, even though we are so devoid of love, he he's sowed that seed of love in our heart. But he who is, Bhagavan is a master gardener. If Bhagavan sows a seed, he will nurture it and take care of it until it grows into a big tree. He will never abandon what he, he he's not a gardener to, to plant something and then abandon it. So Bhagavan has sown this seed Oh, some curiosity is there in our heart to know who am I. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be talking about this subject. So Bhagavan has sown this, this seed of curiosity. This is the beginning of the love. Uh, he's sown the seed of curiosity in our heart. And he, he is doing all that is necessary to nurture it. But we have to cooperate. We, that, that is, Bhagavan often used to say, Grace is not something that will descend from heaven. Grace is there, ever shining in your heart as I am. So since grace is our own real nature, that grace has to work through us. So our effort to turn within and hold on to self-attentiveness, though it seems to us we are doing it, it's actually it's grace working through us. But by by trying our best to hold on to self-attentiveness, we are yielding ourselves to grace. So we we should we can avoid falling into a trap of frustration and um, dejection by constantly remembering Bhagavan's teachings and constantly allowing Bhagavan's teachings to encourage us to keep persevering because that's the only way. There's no one. Bhagavan used to say, "There's no one can succeed in this path without perseverance." Because but it's the very nature of ego to go outwards, to cling to form. So we are breaking this, that is, by investigating ourselves, we are going against our ego nature. We are, we are going back to our real nature by going against our ego nature. So it is a struggle. It's a struggle for everyone. You, if you read Akshramlai, that Akshramlai is, is sung from the perspective of a, of a highly mature spiritual aspirant. So you can see, we can see from that how the struggle goes on up to the very end. 
So this path will always be a struggle. It's not a walk in the park. We have to, I mean, turning our attention inwards, it's, it's not, it's not, it requires effort. Some people say, oh, effortless, choiceless awareness. No, it doesn't work like that. In We're effortlessly and choicelessly aware of the, of the world because of our vasana that is constantly taking us outwards. But we, we are not effortlessly and choicelessly self-attentive. That requires effort. Because because we're going, we're swimming against the current, so to speak. The, the natural mana poke, the, the natural poku, the, the natural out, go, flow of the mind is to go outwards. And we are trying to turn within. So we're swimming against the current of the mind. So it always requires effort. So first we need to, what is required? First we need to understand what is, what is, what actually is self-investigation? It is nothing but self-attentiveness. And what is the self we have to attend to? It is what we know every moment as I. So all we have to do is to attend to I. It, we're not attending to any object. We're not attending to any phenomena. We're not looking for something. How does it feel? Can anyone say how, how, how we all know I am? But how does it feel to know I am? <laughs> we can't say. It's it's not a feeling. It's beyond that. It's uh, it, it it can't be grasped by thought or by word. But we all know I am, and that's all we need to know. We need to hold on to that I am, and uh, whenever our attention comes out again, we need to bring it back. Uh, the sign that our attention has come out is when other things appear. When other things appear, to whom do they appear? We turn our attention back to ourselves. That doesn't mean we ask to whom they appear. As soon as they appear, we try to turn our attention back towards ourselves, the one to whom they appear. And this has to go on ceaselessly. So long as we are trying, we... we uh, and that is, frustration is only for ego. When we think, I have to achieve something, what we are trying to do, we are trying to yield ourselves to Bhagavan. Uh, so there's no room in this path. If we're truly following this path, there's no room in this path for frustration. Yes, we recognize we are not we are not yielding ourselves to Bhagavan enough. We are not surrendering ourselves enough. We are not attending to ourselves enough. But we can all we can do is keep on trying. And we know Bhagavan is always there. Bhagavan is always playing his part. We just have to um we ha we have to play our part. He's as he says very beautifully in the um in the twelfth paragraph of Nana. Um what what he says in the twelfth paragraph of Nana is God and Guru are in truth not different. Just as what has been caught in the jaws of a tiger will not return, so those who have been caught in the look or grants of Guru's grace will never be forsaken, but will surely be saved by him. That is, he says it very, in Tamil, he says it um, very, very forcibly. Um, uh, Avare, uh, uh, likewise, so also. Guruvin Arul Parvail Patavagal uh, Avaral Rachika Padavare Andri Orukalum Kaividapada. That is, he will certainly say, he will certainly save us, uh, um, um, and he will never forsake us. Uh, but then he adds an important caveat Eninum Guru Katia Varipadi Tavaradu Nadika Vendum. 
nevertheless, it is necessary to walk unfailingly in accordance with the path that Guru has shown. So he has, he will certainly do his part. He will certainly never forsake us. He will certainly save us. But we have to play our part. We have to cooperate with his 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 grace is always trying to pull our attention inwards. If we are always rushing outwards, we we are opposing his grace. So we need to yield ourselves to his grace by trying to turn our attention inwards. So this is um if we truly if we understand his teachings correctly and try our best to put them into practice, there is no room for frustration. We just have to keep on trying. And if any feeling of frustration or disappointment or any such feeling arises, to whom does it arise? To me, who am I? We turn our attention back within. So, Harshita, have I answered your question adequately? And Harshita, before you answer, I want to remind you that we're almost out of time and we should try <laughs> one live question. So, Okay, I, yeah, yeah. I'm but anyway, honest. let's see if Harshita has anything to, further to ask. Uh, no, uh, everything is clear. Thank you so much. Okay, right. Thank yeah, that. thank you. And thank you, Michael, for those two excellent answers to those two questions. Yeah. Um, Brief and I, answers. Yeah, so let's go to see if we... I always promise people they can ask questions live of you. So yeah, I'm yeah. glad we have at least time for one question. Yeah, yeah. And just raise your hand or speak up whoever wants to be first, and I'll keep scanning the crowd here to see if I see anybody. I got to go to the second page and the first page. I don't see any hands being raised, but there, I saw one there. Uh, Arnold, Arnold. Whoops. Yes, uh, yes. And yes, it's there. And if we have time, I, I actually sent you a question, but maybe you didn't receive it. We got a lot of questions uh, in. We take them in the order. Oh, okay. So <laughs> go ahead, make it succinct yeah. so people can get Today to it. Today I've answered two out of 27. Yeah, two out of 27 <laughs> questions. Okay. Don't let anybody feel bad. No, um, I, I, was, I uh, have a question. Um, I'm, I'm very, very much uh, inspired by your translation of the, the Guru Vatska Kovai. Uh, that really resonates with me. And I also have the other, read the other translations and the other text. My question is, uh, I have the feeling that everything that needs to be said is in the Guru Vatska Kovai. Is it enough to study only that? Or should I also keep studying the other text of uh, Ramana Maharshi? That is, Guru Vachika Kovai is, is an expansion of what Bhagavan has written in his own original writings. If you want to have Guru Vachika Kovai in a condensed form, there it's available there. That is, all the, all the basic principles of Bhagavan's teachings are included in works like Uludu Napadu, Nana, Upadesha Undia, Anma Vidde, and in a, in a different form in Aranatra Stutipanchakam. These are the basic principles of Bhagavan's teaching. Those basic principles are expanded, so to speak, in Guruvachaka Kovai. Though I translated, or I, I assisted Sadhuam in translating Guruvachaka Kovai many, many years ago, more than 40 years ago, um, I I don't remember all the verses. I some verses here and there I remember, and I refer to them occasionally when they come to mind. 
because 12,000 verses, um, some people may be able to remember 12,000, sorry, 1,200 verses. Uh, some people may be able to remember 1,200 verses. I certainly don't have such a memory. But something like Uludu Napadu or Nana, these are much shorter works. And we can, if we study them repeatedly, we can, um, I mean, I'm able to uh, 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 quote most of them out of, off the top of my head because I, I, I've studied them so much. Um, and not that I've ever made an effort to learn these things by heart, but I just, uh, just am so familiar with them. If we're familiar with these core teachings of Bhagavan, there we have the core principles. And then everything that he says in Guru Vachakakavai falls into place, so to speak. It, it's all the, the what is implied in Uludunapadu and Upadeshundia and Nana and such texts is expanded, is said more explicitly in Guru Vachakakavai. Okay, thank you. I mean, all the texts are great, but mm. the Guru Kovai is really like the, the complete. Yes. And it is, when it I is. end it's reading it, I start again. Yeah, uh, yeah, then I start reading it again, and I can yeah. keep reading it forever. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and Arnold, I will remind you something that you heard here an hour ago, maybe an hour and 20 minutes ago. It was so important, I jotted it down. I need to be reminded of such, such things. And the quote comes from Michael. And he said, I am still reading the texts, meaning probably all of the texts. I am still learning from these. I so relate to this, and it's why I'm still here uh, in any group on a regular basis as a participant, because I can hear these two questions that he answered 20 times and hear the answers to them and learn something new when I hear it yet again. So thanks for that question. It's very pertinent for all of us, I think. Because and, one, one uh, thing about Bhagavad, about Bhagavan's... Um, uh, particularly his verses, like the verses of Guru Vachika Kavai. But, but the meaning is often very simple, but the amount of implication that is there, it becomes clear to us only as we go deeper and deeper in the practice. Yeah. So Bhagavan always implies much more than he actually says. Because he, 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 he expresses himself in very few words, but those few words have a huge amount of implication. Bhagavan is a, like a gift that keeps on giving forever. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we have two more people waiting in line. Uh, one of them, Aaron, has a longer question, and I think we might hold that off. And Vitaly, let's see if we can get yours in with an answer real quick, if you'll speak up. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Dad. Hi Michael. Um, Hi. I um, I came across something in in the book of happiness and the art of uh, being. Yeah. The new one that, that just came out on the page. Uh, I think it's uh, chapter ten and page four ninety eight. There's a reference to a quality and quantity of the food that we consume. It's probably more like a technical question to. Yeah. Um, and um, some other restrictions. Can you can you explain how? And what we eat affects our practice. Okay. Thank you. Well, Bhagavan said it in very few words, as as usual in Nana. But we have we can try and understand what what he says in um, in the in the ninth paragraph of Nana. He says, "By mitta sattvika ahara niyama, which is the best among all restrictions, the sattva guna." 
of the mind increasing for self-investigation, help will thereby arise. Uh, um, sattva guna, sattva literally means sat is being, sattva means beingness. So uh, sattva is the quality of beingness. Um, so uh, <clears throat> the food that is conducive, so beingness means a state of calmness and clarity. That is what's implied by sattva. So what is the food that is conducive to a calm and clear mind? Um, obviously, any, even the best quality food, if you overeat, is going to lead to dullness of mind. So we, when Bhagavan says mitta, mitta means uh, moderate. Uh, it, it implies um, uh, moderate quantities. It also um, implies moderation in, for example, um, moderation in adding spices. Um, if you've ever lived in South India, you'll know some South Indian people like very, very hot uh, spices. But generally, uh, very spicy food or it will um, can can um, can uh, uh, disturb the calmness of mind. So we need to be moderate both in the quantity and in the quality of the food. And it is, so he says mitta, that, that means moderation. Sattvika means what is conducive to the state of sattva. Um, and then ahara, uh, ahara means food. Literally, ahara means what is taken in. So we can... Though the basic meaning of ahara is food, it can also apply to other things. That is, we can be eating very, very um, sattvic food, but if we if we like to watch violent movies on television or something, uh, that's not going to be very conducive because what we are taking in through our senses also has an effect on the mind. So uh, the the um, the basic meaning of ahara in this context is food, but we can also talk about the food taken in through the five senses. Um, so what is the food? And niyama, niyama means uh, uh, restriction. So um, what is what type of food is uh, is most conducive to a, a sattvic state of mind? In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says very nicely, he doesn't say what food is sattvic, what food is rajasic, and what food is tamasic. What he says is, he describes certain types of food. He says certain types of food will appeal to those of a tamasic state of mind. Certain type of food will appeal to those of a rajasic state of mind. And certain type of food will appeal to those of a sattvic state of mind. So if we are sattvic natured, we will naturally be attracted to sattvic food. But some basic things we can say about sattvic food, it, 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 Obviously, it excludes all forms of all um, all non-vegetarian foods, all all uh, that all forms meat, fish, and so on, because these are these foods are produced uh, by causing harm to some living creature. That is, a creature has to be killed in order to be eaten. So, uh, anything that is uh, brought about uh, causing harm to creatures, that's obviously not going to be a sattvic. 
um, uh, in its quality. Um, generally, in uh, traditionally in India, milk, it, eggs are not considered a sattvic, but milk is considered a sattvic. So most Indian vegetarians are lacto-vegetarians. However, how cows were treated in old days in India and how cows are treated nowadays is quite different. Um, that that is nowadays the dairy industry it's a huge industry it's closely connected with the meat industry um calves are separated from the mother when they're just a few days old um male calves are often shot at birth and sent off for uh, for, for the meat processing and or and many young calves are just fattened up and then killed at a very young age cows are are milked and so long as they're um so long as they're producing huge quantities of milk 30 40 liters of milk a day which is completely unnatural and as soon as their the level of milk production goes down they're sent off to the slaughterhouse so the milk as it is produced nowadays i think it, it seems to me it is not satisfied so i think in the context of the modern day world if we want to be to, uh, a minimum standard that we need to observe is vegan food, or at least lacto-vegetarian food, but preferably vegan food. But even certain vegan foods are not so sattvic. As I say, lots of hot spices and so on are not very sattvic. Eating a lot of processed food is probably not very sattvic. Um, so, but ultimately, we we have to we have to find out what's conducive to us. Oh, another thing that's not satvic is obviously uh, drinking or taking drugs or smoking. All these things; these all have an effect on the mind, and they are not satvic either. Um, but we ultimately we have to find what what suits us best. Certain types of food may suit one person and not suit other persons, but. Uh, as far as possible, we need to be at least lacto-vegetarian, preferably vegan. Um, and um, yeah, we, 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 within those general guidelines, we have to find what, uh, what works best for us. But though Bhagavan said this, Bhagavan mentioned this as an aid. So we, we shouldn't be too preoccupied with things, these things. We should find out what suits us, what is what is uh, what we can reasonably uh, take to be sattvic and what suits us, and we should eat accordingly and forget about it. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be too concerned with these things because ultimately what is most important is turning our attention within. This is just an aid to give us a calm and clear state of mind which will be conducive to turning our mind within. Does that adequately answer your question? Yes, absolutely. Yes, okay. thank you. Okay. Very good, very good. I, I think we can squeeze one more in, so it'll be a home run for today. I, I think, uh, as far as I'm concerned, anyway, trying to get an equal balance between the two. And I see that Aaron is here. He's got a question, and uh, I, I've read it before. It's kind of lengthy, so make it as succinct as possible, and we'll get it in in the remaining 15 minutes, okay? Okay, thank you. Go ahead. Um, so my question is, what is the ego grasping and feeding on if everything appears 
when the ego rises? Is it the dream within the dream? Um, and where does Jada, like sit Jada Granthi, come in to this? Right. <clears throat> okay. Um, okay. Earlier I talked about uh, verse 25 and 26, of, verses 25 and 26 of Uludunapdu. If we read verse 25, what Bhagavan says is, grasping form, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. Grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly. Leaving form, it grasps form. If we take that in isolation, it may appear that the forms exist and ego comes into existence and grasps them. But that is not the case, because as he makes clear in the next verse, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. So whatever forms ego grasps do not exist independent of ego. They are ego's own projections. So when we rise as ego, we project a body and take it to be ourselves. Consider dream. We, we never actually know the starting point of a dream. We just find ourselves in a dream. But as soon as we start dreaming, we're aware of ourselves as a body in that dream. That body obviously doesn't exist independent of our dreaming mind. It's, it's, we ourselves have projected that body and take it to be ourselves. Exactly the same in the waking state. So um, all form is, is, I mean, form, forms are illusory in the sense that they have no existence independent of our perception of them, our, of our experience of them. So when we're dreaming, there seems to be a world out there. That world seems to be very real so long as we're dreaming. But when we wake up, we recognize it was all just a mental fabrication. Just like that dream world appeared to be so real so long as we were dreaming, this world now seems to be so real. Why is it that whatever state we're in, the phenomena we experience in that state always seem to be real. There's a simple reason for this. That is, when, when we are dreaming, everything in the dream seems to be real. As soon as we wake up from a dream, we recognize it was just a mental fabrication. So what change has taken place there? It's very simple. What is actually real, as Bhagavan made clear, is only ourselves. In a dream, we take a dream body to be ourself. So since we are real, if a dream body is ourself, the dream body must be real. So by taking a dream body to be ourself, we are superimposing our own reality on the dream body. So so long as the dream body seems to be ourself, seems to be I, it seems to be real. And the dream body is a part of the vast dream world. So the dream body cannot be real without with the rest of the world being unreal. So the, the, so long as we take ourselves to be a body, the body seems to be real, and hence the whole world seems to be real. So we superimpose our own reality, firstly on the body, and via the body we separate, impose it on everything else. So So long as we are dreaming, the dream always seems to be real. But as soon as we wake up from the dream, we recognize, oh, it was just a mental fabrication. Why? Because while we were dreaming, we were identified with that dream body. 
when we wake up, our identification switches from that dream body to this dream body. So now that dream body no longer seems to be real because it no longer seems to be I. So since the dream body no longer seems to be real, the whole dream no longer seems to be real. So whatever state we are currently in will always seem to us to be real. That's why Bhagavan said this present state we are in is actually no more real than a dream. So just like all the forms we experience in a dream are our own projection, but we, so long as we're dreaming, we grasp a, a dream body as I, and we're constantly enjoying the dream objects. We enjoy dream food. We enjoy all sorts of dream pleasures. Um, we may enjoy having a, a discussion about Bhagavan's teachings in our dream, whatever. Just like in waking state, we, we are constantly grasping things other than ourselves in dream. But those things that... We say grasping things other than ourselves, things that seem to be other than ourselves, because we've limited ourselves as, as I am this body. So everything else seems to be something other than ourselves. But actually, the whole dream world is nothing but ourselves. We ourselves are seeing ourselves as that dream world. So we ourselves now are seeing ourselves as all this, this seemingly vast universe with all these phenomena and so many things happening in this world and everything. This is all nothing but ourselves. We are misperceiving ourselves as all these things. If we see ourselves as we actually are, we will see ourselves. We alone exist, and there's no such thing as the world. What seemed to be the world, we will recognize, was nothing actually other than ourselves. So just like, so long as you see a snake as a so, sorry, so long as you see a rope as a snake. The snake seems to be real. The snake seems to exist. But when you see the snake as a rope, in other words, when you see the rope as it actually is, you no longer see a snake. That's why Bowen says, so long as we see the world, we do not know ourselves. When we know ourselves, we will no longer see the world. That's what Bhagavan makes very clear in the third and fourth paragraphs of Nana. So long as we, so long as we are knowing the world, what we know as the world, we are knowing ourselves as the world. So we are not knowing ourselves as we actually are. When we know ourselves as we actually are, we will know that there's no multiplicity. There is one only, without a second, and we are that. That's why the ultimate truth is ajata. So long as we rise as ego, Bhagavan teaches us what is called drishti shristi vada. That is. Drishti Shishti Vada means the, the contention that there's no, that uh, perception alone is creation. There's no creation independent of perception. In other words, nothing exists independent of our perception of it. This is what Bhagavan teaches us in, in Uludunapadu and other texts. This is what we have to accept so long as we see all this multiplicity. But when we investigate ourselves and see what we actually are, we will then see that there never was any such thing as ego, and therefore there never was any such thing as body or world or dream or anything else. So the ultimate truth is ajata. But Bhagavan made it clear ajata is not a teaching, because in ajata there's no one to teach and no one to be taught, and there's no need for any teaching. So for, for teaching, Bhagavan uh, took the standpoint of drishti shristi vada, because that's the most practical teaching in order to get us to investigate ourselves. And only by investigating ourselves 
will we find that the ultimate truth is ajata. So ajata is the ultimate experience. Ajata is the, is the ultimate truth. It alone is true. But so long as we rise as ego, the appropriate teaching to give us is Drishti Shrishti Vada, as Bhagavan does in his teachings. Does that answer that question adequately? Yes, thank you so, so okay. much. Okay, right. Thank you very much, too. And Michael, thank you. And uh, we've got just a few minutes left. <clears throat> I see that David and Marie, David Godman has left us, but it raises an interesting question because I can't think of any other two people in the English-speaking world who are as knowledgeable <clears throat> and is steeped in the tradition and the truth of Ramana's teachings. Uh, did you... Did you have you met before? Have you talked together in forums or on stages before about Ramana, or are you just two well, distinct individuals? We, we we have been friends for the past. I mean, we both came to Tirunamalai. I think in if I I came in seventy six. I think David came just a few months before me. Mm -hmm. So, so we the, our, our friendship goes back nearly fifty years. So we have been friends for a long time. Well, you both have uh, a tremendous gift for clarity and expression, and it's appreciated by everybody. And I just want to remind you of how grateful we all are here of you giving up these precious two hours on a Sunday evening in London every week of the year. It's not a small achievement for us. It's huge. And if anybody has a word to add to that, right now would be the time as we get ready to say, say goodbye. Uh, Mickey, I'm just going to look at you because you're always grateful for everything here. Erin just sent a message from David. I couldn't see what it was. It just popped up. Did uh, on our session here, let's see. It, once. it came up in the comments. Erin, was it? Uh, I don't see. Uh, I it's don't getting see. late yeah, here. Apologies here. for dropping Apologies out early. Dropping out early. Yeah, Good it's, to, it's see to see everyone, including Michael. including Michael. We have things to do early tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning. Best wishes to Best all, David and, all David and Chrissy. Oh, that's really nice. Oh, that's really nice. <laughs> yeah, that is really, really nice. I'm hearing some feedback, I think. Maybe not. It's a great thrill to be here as a learner, as a student, uh, to be reminded of how much both of you dedicate your time and your efforts and renew the lessons over and we, we we are also both we are both of us are also students so we're just fellow fellow students yeah it's uh <laughs> i've never been in a classroom like this before <laughs> i never thought i could sit still for <clears throat> in my life with any a, a classroom by the students for the student well, by the students of the students for the students it certainly is well i'm <laughs> not Unless anybody has a closing comment, I'll give them five seconds to speak up. Oh, looks like Aaron has a comment. Yes. I just wanted to say to everyone, I highly recommend purchasing the book that came out from Michael, 40 Verses, or the translation, um, recently came out this year. Very, very thorough. And this studying, it's just a wonderful um, translation to have on hand to come up with questions to ask. Thank you, Michael, for being so available. And uh, David's books also. Yeah. It's so encouraging to see you still actively participating in this 
um, understanding. It's extremely encouraging. So thank you for all that you do. All, th all thanks to Bhagavan because it's all only by his grace it all happens. And Michael, if I'm not mistaken, you translated all those into English, those 40 verses. Yes. And uh, I understand, and I, her name slips my mind right now, the woman. Sandra. Sandra. Sandra put this together so well for you. She is agreed to sit for an interview, an hour-long soldier and video interview. And she said, you might agree too. So I'm just asking you right here, if you <laughs> I'll let you know. And you can pick the format or the questions. Yeah. That you, yeah. Thanks. Uh, this is just a wonderful treat for me. The year's flying by. We meet next on in November. Can anybody believe we're at the end of the year practically? So thank you all very much. Thanks to David Godman for joining us. Um, and for any of you who are coming to us live this morning or this evening, wherever you might be, at Sushi, you're in Japan, so it's tomorrow sometime already. Uh, and you want to join us throughout the the year on a on a regular Sunday instead of the first Sunday, please feel free to do so. It's the same link to our program that runs every Sunday, 10 a.m. California time. And you're entirely welcome to be here for our 90-minute version. We saved the long format for two hours for Michael because he could go four without batting an eye. But uh, thank you very much. And I think I got all my notes in that I wanted to say. And see you next month for Michael and see all of you who are in the regular group from wherever you might be joining us next week here on the San Diego International Ramana Maharshi Zoom <laughs> Many thanks. Goodbye. Okay. God bless. Okay. Love you. <laughs>